Top of the morning to you. Yeah. That's Irish. That's I always Irish. Yeah, we're we're in Britain. My um story has a little bit of things take place in Ireland. They also have things take place in the Isle of Wight, which is another British area. Oh, interesting. So Ireland. we're drinking the Churchill. The Churchill. So, I don't know if we're going to like it. I can already say I'm not. It's got uh, one and a half ounces of scotch, half ounce sweet vermouth, half ounce orange liqueur. I used um, Cointreau and half ounce of fresh lime juice, which I did squeeze this morning. Look at you. So you're going to pour them all into a mixing glass with ice, stir, and then strain into a chilled cocktail glass and tell us about the glass. So again, if you have heard our previous previous pep, um, episode on rock and roll up um you know i went on a goodwill shopping spree and i found these beautiful i have a really eclectic collection of these because i got some that are tall coops some that are short coops some that are wide coops they're all a different variation of a coop shape but they're um i know they're a brand but i don't know what it's called they've got like little shaven places in them in the shape of flowers so the stem is very fancy. It's got swirl impressions. They're glass. They're not crystal. And it's cut with these little flower petal shapes. They're very beautiful. It's kind of like a tulip-shaped um, like bowl. bowl. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of something that would have been made during the Depression because it's trying to make everyday materials look fancy. Yeah. So I don't know if they come from that era or not, I should really do some research on them, but they're really cute. You can't see the flowers with the drink in them though. Okay, let's try the- I don't want to. Let's try it. I don't want to. I'm gonna try it. Okay. The whiff of it, it doesn't, it doesn't make me think it's gonna be bad. That's nice for you. Um, okay, so definitely taste the scotch. <laughs> it's a scotch and lime, basically, to it's me. It's a scotch and lime. I don't hate it though. I think since I've been drinking more I do. mezcal drinks, I am more accustomed to the smoky flavor. I just don't like scotch. I don't either. Grandpa drank scotch. Yeah, it's very smoky. I can definitely taste the smoke. Whatever brand of scotch you used seems to be a decent brand. It's Johnny Walker Red. Ah. So it's probably not a, it's a normal brand. It's a normal it's brand, right? Yeah. I can definitely taste the smoke. Um, I'm just not a scotch fan, so I think I'm going to let it sit there. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Sorry. Well, sorry. You can talk to me. I'll sip some on it. So I will talk to you. I will talk to you about a time period in the late 1800s where much of the aristocracy in England was broke. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. But they had to keep up appearances. They had to keep up appearances. They had this, they had been making money off of their land, obviously, and their titles. So they get um, rents from their land. But by this point, land had been sold, etc. They still had the titles, but actual cash was getting scarce. They were cash poor. Their castles and mansions had begun to fall apart and they had to figure out what to do because they can't work. You oh. can't open a business or get a job. Heck no. Ew. They You're cannot be, to be expected to do that. No. If you do anything, you become a member of the government, of parliament, but that's all. Wasn't there um, a little element of this in um, Downton Abbey? I may discuss that. Okay. <laughs> Yes, so the the aristocracy in England is very, very poor. At the same time, over across the pond, 
Um, there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of money in America. Yeah. Like yeah. a whole lot of money. Um, for lack of a better term, robber barons were becoming rich beyond their wildest dreams. You've got railroads and steel and um, what are some of the other things? Money lending became very popular. So um, they had ridiculous amounts of money. Now, these are the same people that desperately want to find husbands for their daughters, but the Astors, previous podcast, uh-huh. will not invite them to their parties. Oh, yeah, because we there was a whole thing about Mrs. Astor's parties. Mrs. Astor's parties. Well, the parties are where you go. I'm going to take another sip of this. And I deeply regret it. Um, the Astor's, the parties were where you would go to find a husband for your daughter. Well, yeah, because you can't just meet somebody. No. You might to- be the wrong sort. Yes. But if you can't get invited to the parties, you can't get a husband for your daughter. So some of these people started going to across, to Europe to find marriages suitable for their children. Well, one of these people was um, Jenny Jerome's family. She, <laughs> I'll tell you about her family in a minute. But anyway, so the first American woman to become a, what became known as the dollar princesses oh, huh, huh. was Jenny Jerome. Um, and she married Lady Randolph Churchill. I love um, that her name is Jenny, too, because that's such a, like, completely American name to me. Yes. Well, her first name was Jeanette, but she went by Jenny. She's quite the character. Anyway, so they met, and they married in 1874, and she was the first one. Now, this was a love match. They actually fell in love, and I'm going to talk about their love story a little bit in a minute, but they actually fell in love. The rest of them may not have been. The It became common to come over, go over to England and try and basically sell your kid. Um, and some of them were just miserable. The Vanderbilt girl, Carlotta. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was bawling at her wedding. Just uh-huh. actively crying at her wedding because she did not want to be there. That's so horrible. Yes, yes. But so even though Jenny and... Um, Randolph loved one another their parents of course argued over money and the bride's fortune so she became Lady Randolph Churchill upon their marriage but let's talk about the two of them so I'm gonna start with him first Randolph was born in on Wilton Terrace in Belgravia London and he was the third son to John Spencer Churchill who was the Marquis of Blanford and his wife the Marchioness of Blanford um Blanford sounds pretty yes in 1857 when his father died John Churchill Randolph's father became the seventh Duke of Marlborough oh yes so we're getting fancy now um, the younger son, as the younger son, he became the, of a Marquess. He was simply a Lord. Just so, a, just a Lord. Sorry, you cannot be a Duke or a Marquess. You are just a Lord. But anyway, and, but since he was a commoner, he could have a career in the House of Commons. He attended Tabor's Preparatory School. And in 1863, he went to Eton College and he remained at Eton College till 1865. He was not really one to stand out economically or economically, academically, academically, (laughs) my gosh, um, or play sport while at Eton. He just kind of was, you know, he was the third son. So he got to play and he played. Um, They described him as a rather unruly boy. 
Sounds fun. Yes. So he made some lifelong friendships while he was there with Alfred Arthur Balfour and Archibald Primrose, who later became Lord Rosebery. In August, October 1867, he went to Merton and at Oxford, Merton College at Oxford. Him and he and Primrose, who now was Lord Dullamy, um, along with another um, person, went to the became members of the Bull Bulling Dawn Club, and this was basically just uh, let's we're all it's a frat. Yeah, it's a frat. Yeah. Um, they were champagne-fueled parties. So he was frequently in trouble for drunkenness and smoking in his uniform, his academic dress, and smashing windows at the Randolph Hotel and just otherwise being, you know, rowdy. He's a frat boy. <laughs> He's a frat boy. He's a frat boy. And so they were described as enfant terrible. <laughs> terrible infants. He's a frat boy. <laughs> He's a frat boy, <laughs> So he liked hunting and fishing. He did become a somewhat of a historian, and he earned his second-class degree in jurisprudence and, and modern history in 1870. In 1871, he and his older brother, George, were initiated into the rites of Freemasonry, as his son would later be. Mm -hmm. um, though he, he had a lot of health problems. He was a very heavy smoker and a sufficient to, they, quote, burn his tongue. Oh, that's yes. a lot. So his friends and his doctors were advising him to quit smoking and moderate his drinking, which, you know, he didn't. why? Yeah. <laughs> which I can tell you right now, knowing nothing about this man, he didn't. <laughs> but he was a hard worker, and he, um, he was described as having a temper of gallops and fits until it falls. Um, he had periods of intense activity that led to exhaustion, followed by periods of profound fatigue and melancholia. So he was bipolar. Pretty much, yes. Um, I talked about his his fits of rage later, and his son actually said that he was very embarrassed by them. Um, in the general election of 1874, he was elected to Parliament as a conservative member of for Woodstock. He was not related to the Woodstock, New York. Um, <laughs> he neared his family seat of Bellingham Palace, his maiden speech was delivered in his first session, and it was prompted compliments from William Harcourt and Benjamin Drisdell, who wrote to the queen of his energy and natural flow. Oh. Yes, so he's impressing the right people. Um, he was a very close friend of Nathan Rothschild, who was the first Baron Rothschild, and received extensive loans from the Rothschilds. As you do. He had a little bit of a gamble. Yeah, which, as you, know, as you do. <laughs> his bride's going to help him out with. But so he he invested in some South African mining industries and consolidated those with their agent Cecil Rhodes. And some of these mining industries eventually led to the creation of diamonds. De Beers. Yes. Oh, De Beers. The De Beers diamonds, which is a fascinating story. A and whole, I want to do so yeah, bad. That's a whole other story. Yes. So in 1873, however, he was at a ball and he meets the young American daughter, Jenny Jerome, daughter of Leonard Jerome, who is a wealthy New York financier. So let's talk about Jenny. So Jeanette, Jenny Jerome was born in Brooklyn in 1854. Her parents were Clara and Leonard Jerome. She was the second of four daughters. One of them died in childhood. Um, her father made his fortune in stocks, and he was dubbed the King of Rawls, Wall Street. 
he i don't know why but when you were talking about um what's his face i kept thinking about the wolf of wall street (laughs) (laughs) well that's father-in-law that's papa-in-law so he's dubbed the the king of wall street and he come came from huguenot um forebearers he his for his family immigrated to america from the isle of Wight in 1710 so in the photo of this drink there are two perfume bottles and a paperweight and those come from the Isle of Wight. There's a very famous glass blowers there. They're very, very pretty. They are very pretty. I have quite a bit of Isle of Wight from my aunt. She was a big fan of the glass blowing um, company there. And I think she even went to visit Isle of Wight, which I would love to someday. It's just this oh, tiny little looks, British island. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. So he came from the Isle of Wight, which is the connection for the picture. Um, the Hall family lore, so mom's family, um, like every other American family, claims to have Iroquois ancestry or some sort of Native American ancestry. Yeah, and then so. the other half came from on the Mayflower. Yes, from the Isle of Wight in 1710. So she was renowned for her beauty. There, the three daughters were known as the. Oh, where did I write that down? The good, the witty, and the beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So she was the one that was known for the beauty. She. At least those are all good things. Yes. Yes. She was very. She wanted to be in the New York elite, but the Knickerbockers, or she was part of the Knickerbockers who lived in Manhattan, which meant they were new money and not welcome at the Astors Ball. Um, Despite not being welcome at the Astors Ball, at their mansion, they had a family, it was a family home on Madison Avenue. It had a 600 seat opera house and a fountain that flowed with real champagne. Okay, let's move there. Yes, so there's need, just a fountain in I the middle of the house with champagne about the, in it. I'll rent out the opera house to keep the champagne flowing. <laughs> yes. yes, just walk by. Hmm, I'm thirsty. Get me a glass and just shove it in the I fountain. I would just like carry one of those necklaces <laughs> that have the glass attached to it everywhere I went. Stick it in. Stick it in. <laughs> I would just guzzle. Yes. So they're not allowed into the smart set. So mama, mom takes the daughters to England. Now, another reason, or she takes them to Europe. Um, she would take them to parties there to get, you know, be seen by the right people. But another reason that she decided to take them to Paris in 1867 was dad just brought his mistress home to move into the mansion with them. So she's going to go get her daughters married off and spend all their money. Yes. That is exactly what happened. Yes. This is, reminds me of a, a friend of mine. I'm going to be vague. Okay. To protect privacy. But a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, her mom was about to get divorced and took us on a shopping spree and spent a crap ton of money. Oh, that's funny. And I knew that it was happening at the time, but uh-huh. she bought us like Nike Air shoes. This is the 80s. Yeah. And like CDs and like oh my all kinds goodness. of crap. <laughs> That's funny. I did that on a smaller scale. I was moving out of first husband's house and I went and rented a U-Haul to do that with his credit card. Not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I still felt very badly. You spent $19.99. <laughs> That's funny. Um, oh, so I forgot to talk about the Downton Abbey. Yes. In Downton Abbey, there is a plot point where that Cora is was a dollar princess. Yeah, I thought I remembered something about that. Yeah, I totally forgot to talk about that. Sorry. So I liked Cora though. I like Cora too, and they actually fell in love later. Yes. So and then there's that whole scene with Lady Crowley, the mom, 
the mother-in-law yeah. who gets upset at him because he said she said you married her against my wishes for her money and now you're just going to give her money away because they were going to lose everything yeah uh, if they didn't have a male heir which i still get angry about the baby oh the and baby the soap. i know anyway child number one and i are watching it but we've not been able to watch it in a while I'm re-watching it. She's watching it. So anyway, mom takes kids to Paris to spend daddy's money because daddy is bringing the whore home. So her dark, um, Jenny, Jenny's dark beauty, or Jeannie's dark beauty was called by Lord de Aberton um, that she was more panther than woman in her look. So he Ooh. called her the panther. So she's absolutely stunning. So she was very no, well known for her beauty, and she interestingly had a snake tattoo on her wrist. Oh, not something that you would think an heiress would do, or ever be or allowed have, to do. Exactly, yeah. be allowed to do. But so she had a snake tattoo on her wrist. She was a talented amateur pianist. She was taught by, oh, just some guy named Stephen Heller, who was a friend of Chopin. No big deal. No big deal. Um, and he said that she had the. Concert, she had, was good enough to attain concert, concert standard, but it would take hard work of which he does not feel she's capable. Yeah, she like she's like very talented. I, I get it, I get it, because I've been that way in certain things in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm very talented at the, this thing, but I don't want to do the work. Yes. To be at the next level, I'm happy at the level I'm at. Yeah. Now, wasn't your father very upset about one of those things? Mm, not upset. Just, I mean, it's reality. Yeah. So. Yeah. Your kids do what they want to do. You yeah. can't do that for them. But anyway, so following the invasion of France, of France from Germany in 1870, they decided to move to London. So while they are in London, they, young Jeannie meets the Prince of Wales. Oh, no big deal. Um, the future King Edward VII. And they get along great. Oh, they get along. They get along. Um, interestingly, the friendship and the um, love affair may have come around again oh. in her life more often than just this one t short time. But she was an official royal mistress for a short time. And then one day, oh, it's time for class. Sorry about that. We're on a school break and I didn't turn my, my alarms off. So anyway, during um, their time as official friends, um, he takes her to a party at the Duke of Marlborough's house, or takes her to a party, and he introduces her in the summer of 1873, um, and this was on the, it was a sailing regatta on the Isle of Wight, and introduces her to one of his young friends, chap friends, the Lord Randolph Churchill, and like, Thank arrows you. shoot across yeah. each other, and hearts explode out of their eyes, and three days later he proposes. When you know, you know. When you know, you know. Now, they don't get to get married right away. They met in 1873. They don't get married until 1874, almost a year later, because their parents were arguing over money. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, the Spencer Churchills opposed the marriage completely, but Daddy finally, um, Daddy, whatever her name is, I can't remember, um, finally forks over $250,000, the equivalent of 4.3 million pounds. Um, that's serious money. Yes, that was her dowry. And so, Jerome. So soon the Churchills were like, okay. <laughs> so because their palace was in a state of disrepair and they knew that they could not keep them apart, 
because there was a rumor that as she walked down the aisle, young Winston was already there. Oh, yeah. I'm making a motion with my belly, or with my hands on my belly. However... She's preggers. She's preggers. Maybe. Um, there was a, There's a lot of speculation with this. There's some speculate, because he was born prematurely. So... What if it was really the, um, the, what's his faces? Oh, the princess. Windsor. The du- oh. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting thought. I, nobody mentioned that. I'm just... There's speculation about the second son not being his. Oh. Yeah. But with Winston, the spe- speculation was he showed up premature. So they Which said she was Which would make pregnant. Winston Churchill an heir of the king. king. Don't know. Let's just like ruminate on that for a second. <laughs> okay. So Winston Churchill could have been the, our king. Yeah. I like him better as a prime minister since he no. saved the Western world. Yeah, no, he did, he did what he needed to do. Yes, for sure. Um, but she also fell from a horse when she was young and suffered a hip injury. And that could also cause premature birth. And since her second son was also premature... There's some speculation that uh, don't really ruin the illusion. Sorry. <laughs> and then there's also speculation that both children were premature because good old daddy Randolph had syphilis. Oh yeah, there's that. <laughs> we're gonna go through all that too. The biggest. Yes, Bob Egg syphilis. But there's all sorts of there's arguments on both sides, and I talk a little bit about both. But anyway, so she's baby comes along very shortly after. But as soon as they become married officially, they're just like you know hands on each other all the time um just after their marriage he's elected a member of parliament for woodstock and he embarks on this political career that is just ups and downs and he goes to all kinds of places he's banished ireland for a while and he becomes some big shot in india for a while he's just great um he actually has a very promising career but his health not so good Maybe because of the syphilis? Maybe because of the syphilis. It might have also been brain cancer, but, you know. there's Could have also been the, his lifelong history of poor choices for his health. Yes. One of those poor choices led him to get drunk and go to bed with a quote-unquote old hag. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell that story <laughs> So, Are you not drinking that? I'm not drinking I'm gonna that. I'm going to drink it. Go for it. I actually decided I like it. Okay, good. I'm not a scotch fan. So shortly after their wedding, he, you know, baby um, Winston is born. And young Jeannie, just not... Not motherly? Mom. No. So she, you know, baby, adorable, lovely. Here, nanny. And off she goes. Good thing she can afford things. it. <laughs> yes. So they travel. She and her husband travel the country, but she misses London. Travel to the country, but she misses London. So she goes, Randolph, being very unpredictable and unstable. They often wanted to be apart. So most of the time, Jeanette is left with his mother, her mother-in-law, Frances, whom does not like her. Um, Randolph ends up having to go to Ireland for a time and as the Viceroy of Ireland. And while they are there, their second son, John, was born in 1880, also premature. Now, there is a rumor that the syphilis may not have been caught from the whore in college, but it may have been caught later from a maid in the household during the time when he could not have sex with Jeannie because she was very pregnant with Winston. Okay. Yes. So Jeannie apparently liked sex a lot. 
So this is where you get the rumor that he now knows he has syphilis. He's not having sex with her. She's having sex with somebody because Brother John came along. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of very interwoven theories on all of this. I still think the Duke of Windsor, though, could have been Churchill's daddy. (laughs) Maybe. But now young Churchill is eight, and he gets sent off to boarding school. As they do. Which just makes me sad. He's only eight. He's little. Yeah, your kids are like 15 and almost 14. And I would never send them to boarding school. Ever. (laughs) But anyway, so she did this so that she could continue to help do her charity work and help her husband. She wrote some of his speeches, um, and... She is actually attributed to some of his success and popularity. Oh, wow. Which was not something that was done. You know, the women did the stuff, but they didn't get any credit. Yeah, no, that's awesome. She seems cool. She seems very cool. She does some really cool stuff later on. Um, She is known, she has some notoriety on her own for her promoting her conservative policies. Um, And she ignores her son, please, to come home. And one time he comes home for vacation for his birthday and mommy and daddy are at a spa in russia (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so sad it's very sad i don't know why i'm laughing that's not a thing you laugh at no it's horrible i just lost my place all right um so they're often they go they went to the spa in russia for his health by 1887 randolph is has resigned from all of his parliamentary positions because his health is just way too bad some say it was rather sudden um so this means no income for Jeannie and her family and they actually discussed divorce at the time but i think daddy came in and saved the day okay. i don't know for sure because it doesn't say for sure but somehow they stayed together and um Lady Randolph was able to keep all of the money or all of the land and titles because she wanted them for her sons. Yeah, so he would have had to have bailed them out, basically. Yes, I would, I would, nothing ever said that, but that would be the only explanation. So, um, unless the Duke of Windsor bailed them out, the Duke of Windsor (laughs) could have bailed them out. One thing that I read, I didn't write it because it didn't fit anywhere, but. Lord Randolph would come home sometimes from um, different trips, and the Prince of Wales would be in his house. No maid or anybody in the in the room, just he and Prince of Wales and his wife hanging out. They're just chatting, chatting tea. Yeah, that wasn't done. Yeah, that was no big deal. There was also quite the controversy with the Duke wanted to do something, and. Um, Randolph didn't want him to, and so he threatened to expose these letters that he'd written to another mistress. So they had quite a tumultuous relationship anyway, beside the fact that he was sleeping with his wife. Totally. Allegedly sleeping with his wife. Totally. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, um, Lord Randolph had this horrible temper. It's well documented. He would just have it was here's a quote lord randolph had an impetuous temper an intellectual disdain of natures from which intellects and have been omitted moods of black despair later in life but all throughout through life acted to win his battles without much thought of the cost all these he had and no one of them nor all of them broke or impaired the spell laid upon about laid upon those about him the very quick and piercing judge of the situation, Lord Randolph Churchill's judgment was not really reliable. 
it's kind of like and it um, goes on from there he kind of is like he has that charisma to draw people in but he doesn't really want that like yeah it's like kurt cobain or something kind of yeah i think he and part of it could be like you mentioned earlier bipolar yeah it could be brain cancer it could be syphilis it could be rich boy who's the third son and was treated that way all of his life yeah you know any one of those things could have done it but this is such a soap opera i'm it's like so a soap opera and i'm like scratching i'm, I'm not yeah. digging in you could deep dive in here i'm thoroughly enjoying this yes so by 1890 he was very very sick and he had palpitations associated with exhaustion his family physician described prescribed belladonna laudanum and digitalis um digitalis so, is for your heart yes laudanum, he had a bad heart yeah laudanum, laudanum is opium and booze yeah and then um belladonna isn't that like straight up poison yeah and he'd already had the mercury up the penis because after he thought that he had syphilis. So he woke up in this horror's bed and immediately went to the doctor and said, treat me with disinfect, disinfect me. Disinfect me. And then three days later, he found a pimple on the end of his penis. So he went in and got the um, mercury. mercury treatment. But the odds of catching syphilis from one sexual encounter is like 1%. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's an argument against it and for the brain cancer or the whatever else mm -hmm. it could have been. He had a lot of, he had a lot going on. He had a lot going on. So, um, in 1882, he had an extended illness in which Lady Randolph's diary refers to as tiredness and fevers. Later in the mid 18, in mid 1893, um, Dr. Rose told Jeannie, who was distraught after her husband's illness, that he had a heart condition, but it had been cured. But around this time, he started slurring his words and having difficulty speaking and having balance problems. He had a stroke. Yes. I think he had brain cancer and that caused all of these other things. Yeah. Um, but their marriage survived, but they, you know, they don't really love each other anymore. And he's getting rapidly worse. Um, by 1894, he was described as as weak as helpless in mind and body as a child. That's sad. Yes. Um, his own son wrote that in his biography. Winston Churchill wrote the biography of Randall Churchill. Uh, that's, Randall Churchill. It's just sad. Yes. So, on to Jeannie. Jeannie had quite the voracious sex drive. She cared for Randolph, but she's rumored to have over 200 lovers, including the already mentioned Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. um, and she was often nicknamed Lady Randy. Oh. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yes. Um, the descendants... Her descent, many descendants of the family believe that Randolph was not John's father, but um, some do as well. So she took French lovers and even had her son, because I got, I read two different lines. So over the next two years, until Randolph's death in 1895, he complained of dizziness and palpitations and intermittent numbness in his hands and feet. His speech became more slurred. And um, during one of his last parliamentary speeches, he hesitated in the text and his friend, um, Lord Rosebery, later recorded that he was the chief mourner at his own protracted funeral, a public pageant of gloomy years. I'm not putting this in, but who does that remind you of? <laughs> 
I feel badly for him. I do too. His wife and his advisors are being cruel. Yes. They are setting him up to look like an idiot because he is not capable of doing this. Yes. It's disgusting. Yes. Oh, that's funny. You're not putting that in. <laughs> no, don't put that in. <laughs> don't put that in. We'll be visited by the FBI. Or the, what are they that take care of him? Secret Service. Secret Service. Um, so anyway, he eventually became more quick-tempered and combative, and finally he died in a coma of pneumonia and probably kidney failure. Um, they had gone on a tour, a whirlwind tour, in 1895 against their doctor's wishes or advice, but they really wanted to do this, and with they took a lead-lined coffin with them just in case he died while they were on the trip. Oh, my gosh. Yes. They're like a... Okay, so do we have, um, like, your suitcase? My, <laughs> Did you get the lead line coffin? <laughs> yes, but if you have the money, you can do this. Um, so anyway, he, the dramatic deterioration in his health and behavior, which lasted for three years, could support the syphilis, could support the brain tumor, all sorts of stuff. You don't really know. But he eventually died of a coma in 1895. Um, there is all kinds of speculation, but the big, one of the biggest things against the syphilis diagnosis is Jeannie didn't have it mm -hmm. and neither did the boys and she liked sex. So they had sex. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. So anyway, Jeannie is now a widow at age 41 and she lives on a very restricted income, but she does some great things. She started a magazine for a while. Oh, that's cool. Um, she had a, she received an award from the Red Cross for her work during one of the wars. And then she fell in love with an American named Burke Cochran, who was a friend of Winston's. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's, Stacy's mom has got it going on, I guess. Yep, yep, he was 23. Um, oh, pardon me. That was, that was, they, sh they didn't get married. Oh, okay. But she married another friend of Winston's, um, who was George Frederick Middleton Cornwallis. He was 23. Um, and they married. And in doing this in 1897, it actually, it was against the protests of the two boys, and it actually took away some of their inheritance. I could see that. Because yeah. of the rules of yeah. marriage. Um, she continued to have different affairs. Um, when the Prince of Wales died, she was seated in the official box. It was called the loose box because it was all where all the mistresses were. <laughs> when her husband died, um, the prince write, wrote to her, quote, My dear Lady Randolph, the sad news reached me this morning that it is all over, and I felt that for his sake and yours, it was best so. There was a cloud in our friendship, but I am glad to think that it has been long forgotten by both of us. And at that time, he called her Lady Randolph. Within a year or two, he was calling her Jeannie. And so, you know, there's that. Um... So in 1814, she divorced the young man because he was had spent a bunch of money. And he was a child. And he was a child. However, in her early 60s, she married the 32-year-old Montague Porch. Montague oh. Porch. And they got married in um, 1918. 
Um, sadly, not long after that, she died. Her death was very unexpected. She'd fallen down the stairs and broken her leg, and the leg got gangrenous and had to be amputated, and she died in June of 1921 from a hemorrhage after the fall. So, fascinating life. Crazy soap opera marriage to this basically crazy guy. I mean, he wasn't crazy. He had issues. He Don't had, know what those yeah. issues were, but he had issues. And then she, her life was so, such a mixture of, it reminds me of a lot of the different people that I've done because it was such a mixture of she's doing good things, but she's also doing whatever she wants to do, which was not done in those days. So no. people looked down on her. Yeah. And yet she produced one of the greatest minds and saviors of the Western world, yeah. That we know. The Winston Churchill. The Winston Churchill was her son. Mm -hmm. Even though she was, you know, marrying 21-year-olds and having sex with the prince. She, yeah. <laughs> no, that's... I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> it was interesting. So what are you going to tell me about? I'm going to tell you about Churchill's spy files. Ooh. So in April of 1943, the British Security Service, otherwise known as MI5 at the time, Agreed to begin briefing the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. I want to know why they changed the name of it. When does it stop being MI5 and start being MI6? And when's MI7 coming? Yeah. Is it have to do with each um, monarch? Maybe. Maybe. Because we've had this monarch for a very, very long, long time. Very long time, yeah. I'm sure we'll find out soon. <laughs> God, you're awful. <laughs> I mean, relatively Yes. Soon. She's old. To... to to harken back to the conversation that we had earlier. Well, yeah. What does the Monarch Intelligence 5, is that what it sounds for? I or bet that's what it is. Maybe. I think we've cracked the code. We cracked the code! Um, so anyway, they agreed to start briefing Winston Churchill on its mo their most classified operations. As they should. He's the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, Churchill was always fascinated by espionage and counterintelligence, and occasionally he wanted more detail about specific cases that caught his attention. Uh -huh. And here are some of the ones that he that stood out to him that he asked for more about. Okay. So the first is Harlequin. Major Richard Warman, codenamed Harlequin, was a German intelligence officer who was captured by the Allied troops in North Africa in, in November of 1942. He was purporting to be a member of the German of Germany's Armistice commis Commission, but he was in fact a senior military intelligence officer stationed in Algiers. Okay. He was brought to London in January of 1943 after becoming convinced of um, Germany's defeat, which was like about to happen. He offered to cooperate with his interrogators, and he brought like just a ton of intelligence to the allies he talked about um details of his work with previous assignments in paris and berlin he describes described the entire i can't say certain words because of my tongue <laughs> which is crazy that it's still mo yeah it's been months yeah so he described the entire abroir establishment and which was like the secret police basically and he detailed the staff and operations of the Kriegs organization in Madrid, where 300 officers were um, engaged in espionage against the Allies. He was promised British citizenship. So he, then Wormann adopted the identity of a nobleman, Count Ooh. Heinrich Steinbach, who was supposed to be from the Baltic region. Um, and, Heinrich Steinbach? Yeah. That's the best name they could come up with? I know. For a British citizen from the Baltic region? Yeah, it sounds 
so fake. It's very German. Yeah. Um, so apparently he realized it sounded fake too. Cause oh, he, good. he later asked to become just a regular prisoner of war. <laughs> so he went to a camp in the United States and stayed there for the remainder of the war. Um, the next one is the case of Charles Badeau. So one of the German spies compromised by Harlequin, who we just talked about, uh-huh. was Charles Badeau, a French industrialist and Nazi sympathizer. Another hard word to say. Badeau had been especially close to the Duke of Windsor, uh-huh. former King Edward VIII, and um, the one-time monarch had married at the tycoon's country home in France. He married, what's your name? I don't know Simpson who- there? I don't know who he married. I didn't look that up. It has to be Simpson, because that's the only time he was married. She was married three times, but he was only married once, okay, right? Okay, then he married he married her at um, his home, at Charles Bedeau's home in France, the Chateau, Chateau oh, de Condé. wow. Well, they were pretty much Nazi sympathizers. Yeah. Okay, that, them. that makes sense then. Yeah. Because this guy, Charles Bedeau, was a Nazi sympathizer. Oh, interesting. I want to know where Coco Chanel fits in all of it. I know. <laughs> so in June... Oh, so they got married in June of 1937. Uh-huh. Um, Badeau was eventually arrested by U.S. troops in Algiers. He was in prison in Florida. The FBI investigated him and charged him with collaborating with the Nazis. And then it was revealed that he was under the sponsorship of the German occupation forces in Paris. Um, he had a, Europe, a business that he ran there that was like an extensive business he um also was intending to undertake a secret mission in west africa but he died of a drug overdose in february 1944 oh darn oh apparently sorry sorry. apparently it was a self drug overdose so he intended to die yeah probably because he was about to get caught he basically did get did get caught I don't understand how you could be have any association with that regime at all. I, it's just bad. I don't either. Like, especially as a Frenchman, like you're not a German. Yeah. And years, and they were doing horrible, horrible things years before any of this happened. That was already known. They knew about it. Yes. I talked about Kristallnacht the other day in class. And that was in the 30s. And so they knew that they were bad people. Yeah, and this and was people 1944. I think that Crystal Knox was either in 31 or 33 or 36. I don't remember which. But still enough before that that people knew what had happened. Yeah. And yet they still supported this regime. It's insanity. Like 10 years later. Insanity. I know. Um, so the next one was called Codenamed Columbine. Oh my. So further information about German intelligence was supplied to the Allies by one of the most important defectors of the war. Hans Walter Zeck Nentwich, codenamed Columbine. Um, Churchill was intrigued by the SS and... um, Like the organization? Yes, the organization. Aren't they the ones that went and studied the Wild West show? Buffalo Bill's Wild West show to see how they packed and unpacked? Don't know. I thought I heard that somewhere that something, some higher-ups in the Nazi regime went and studied the travel of buffalo bill's wild west show because they were so efficient with packing and unpacking Hmm. makes sense yeah anyway sorry 
Keep no, going. That's totally fine. I interrupt you too much. So Zek Nentwich, which is a hard, <laughs> it's also hard to say. Super glad I'm not the only one having pronunciation trouble. I know. He claimed to have served with the SS units in Eastern Europe, but claimed that the atrocities he had witnessed horrified him, which is why he became a defector from oh, the war. Good for him. Um, he omitted to mention that he had a role in the 22nd SS Cavalry's Massacre of 3,000 Jews. Well, yeah, you, you, you hushed down what you did. He probably <laughs> didn't want to talk about it. No, it was horrifying to him, I'm sure. Um, so he ended up showing up at the British em- Embassy in Sweden, and he was interrogated in London under the alias of Dr. Sven Nansen. And he also participated in a series of clandestine black radio broadcasts to Germany, which were transmitted from um, the Woburn Abbey by the political war executive. And he... What were they? What'd they do? I think it was like he was broadcasting to Germany as if things like... Were fine? Things were fine or like things were happening that weren't or vice versa. World War II... And the spy craft around it. I know. Just fascinating. All the different things that they did. It's crazy. Like setting up those, um, making roofs look like hillsides and setting up the paper and blow up balloon yeah. campments. That's hilarious. Cool stuff. Um, so anyway, Zek Nentwich um, eventually became an embarrassment to the British authorities. He was co- convicted of corruption in 1950. Oh my. And then in April of 1964, he was tried on war crime charges. He was sentenced to four years imprisonment and then he escaped and went to Egypt and he eventually surrendered and lived out his days in Remagen, which I guess is in German. I don't know where that's at. And he called himself the Count Zekninwich. Oh, Okay. But I think it's kind of funny that, like, he defects, helps them out, and then becomes a complete embarrassment to them. Yeah. Because he was not a good guy. No. I mean, he was... Defecting and helping helping the Allies was a good act. Yeah. He he had some shining moments. Okay. There's a good way to put it. I like yeah. it. Um, so the next is the Mulberry Leak. So... It's considered the most awkward moment of MI5's reports to Churchill. They're- Hold on, though. I think our I found a hole in our theory. Why? Oh, no, she wasn't queen then yet. No. Okay, never mind. I think we're right. Yeah, I think we're right, too. Um, so British in- people everywhere are going, God, they're idiots. I know. <laughs> well, if you don't like us, rate and review us. <laughs> Okay. Sorry. So anyway, in March of 1944, there was a security breach. (laughs) I find it so annoying when podcasters just start giggling for no reason. If you know, you know. March. In March of 1944, there was a security breach that threatened to jeopardize the Allies' plans to launch the Normandy invasion. At the heart of... Operation Overlord, which was what it was called, was the construction of two huge harbors that were codenamed Mulberry. Um, They were supposed to ensure the the resupply of the 160,000 troops of food, ammunition, armor, and other essential material. Um, There weren't really any other deep water ports that were available that would be able to, um, that were easily defended on the French coastline. Uh-huh. 
So General Eisenhower arranged for hundreds of prefabricated concrete caissons to be towed across the English Channel from Weymouth. The All these components were called Phoenix. Okay. Um, they were built in river estu- estuaries in England under, like, complete secrecy. But one of the Union officials, who didn't understand how significant they were, put out a report. Or how secrecy works. Yeah. I don't think he even knew it was supposed to be secret. I, I just think he wasn't even considered, like, it wasn't even considered that he should be told, like, don't say anything. Uh-huh. So like, he, because he should know that, or because... I think just... he was just a peon, like... Yeah, yeah. okay. That's kind of how I... I don't know. But anyway, he sent out a report to his union colleagues, some of them um, who were in a neutral area in Ireland, and he basically said that, like... This is what's going on. And so then, like, 265 copies of this report have been sent out. Oh, my gosh. So, um... It reminds me of that soldier who, in Russia, who nudged the other soldier. Hey, are we going to do the invasion for Catherine tonight? Yeah. <laughs> so they tried to, like, get all these reports and destroy them. Because yeah. they're actually... It's not like, you know, they're physical papers. Right. It's not electronic at this point. Yeah. But, um... So... They pretty much were able to get most of them. It didn't really leak out to the um, Germans. But anyway, Churchill, like, blew his lid when he found out about yeah. this. So after that... The, Normandy was a massive undertaking yeah. to organize. Yeah, for sure. And so then after that, the Churchill basically went to the Trade Union Congress and basically told them, like, I don't care what it is. Don't say anybody... Don't say anything to anybody about anything. Yeah, just like keep your freaking mouth shut. Yeah, assume it's all for We're the war. We're at war. Assume it's all for the war. Don't yeah. say anything. Smart. Yeah. As the most of those people should have assumed anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, don't be a freaking idiot. You are at war with evil. So then the final one is the spy who saved D-Day. Ooh. So the spy operative who really fascinated Churchill was a Spanish officer working for Franco's fascist regime. Re- regime who had secretly volunteered to MI5 as a double agent. Um, his name was Juan Pujol Garcia, and he was codenamed Garbo. He um, established himself in Portugal, where he began just like fabricating all these wild tales for the Aberwar controller in Madrid. Um, he eventually was able to convince the German handler that, was, um, that he was talking to that he had recruited an entire spy network in London. In reality, Garbo's organization of 24 sub-agents was all completely faked. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's telling the Germans, hey, I've got this many people here that are willing to help me. Yeah, I've got this whole network. Like, it's all set up. We're in London. We're ready to go. But it was completely fake. Oh, that's Which is hilarious. I love double agents. I I just think they're so cool. They're horrible. I mean, I don't know. How, like, how good do you have to be, though, to be a double agent? Because you have to remember who is where, on what side, what story you've told to whom. Can't really write it down in and case somebody finds it. Yeah, what you can release to this side, what uh-huh. you can release to that side. And if you are a double agent trying to work both sides for your own gain, it's yeah, worse. Yeah, because there's double agents that aren't actually working for one side. There's double agents that are working, working for, for themselves. Yeah. Like Matahari. Yeah. Crazy. Um, well, ru- Allegedly. Allegedly. So, where was I? Oh, 
Um, so he got MI5 support as he con concocted all these reports detailing observations of military con concentrations in the southeast of England. Um, he exchanged information about a cross-channel amphibious operation that was supposed to happen in the summer of 1944. And he was able to persuade the German high command that the D-Day landings in Normandy were nothing more than a diversionary feint designed to distract the enemy from the real invasion area, which was supposedly the Paz de Calais. So he basically told them the exact opposite. Yeah, he's like, oh, they're just pretending Normandy's going to be the place, but reality, it's going to be this other. Where it was really the opposite. Yeah. They're pretending that, oh, cool, I like him. I He sounds really interesting, but anyway, he um, proved to be the most successful double agent of all time, and the Allied exploitation of strategic deception ensured the success of D-Day, and he Yay earned him. Churchill's highest admiration. Aww. But yeah, so this is from Military History Now. Yeah, so my source is um, 12tomatoes.com, um, Wikipedia, Spacious Educational, Spartacus Educational, Crown Chronicles, History, Wikipedia, and WinstonChurchill.org. 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 Um, I thought about doing Winston. He was definitely fascinating, but... Um, I like his mom. I no, that was cool. <laughs> I was that was unexpected for me. I thought it was going to be about Winston, yeah. but it wasn't. And I'm no expert on him. I'm not an expert on anything. Just drunk. Just drunk. You especially after drinking too. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where, you'll want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crimeandtimeotr. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Right.